morning, everyone. This series entitled Lost uh, is based on a statement that Jesus made about himself in Luke 19, verse 10. This is what he said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, whenever we try to navigate the vast maze that is this life with all of its decisions and all of its problems and struggles, and we do so without any real direction, ongoing direction from the God who made both us and this world, it's very easy for us to get lost. And this experience shows up in several different facets. We've been looking at some of these facets. We began by looking at what occurs when we get lost in the moment, and we begin to live for a much smaller purpose than we were created for. And then we looked at what occurs when we get lost in our emotions, and we use how we feel as kind of the primary compass to navigate our decisions in life, and that gets us in all kinds of problems. And then we looked at how we get lost in the past. We get stuck in the guilt of either what we have done or what has been done to us and the bitterness of that, and we get stuck in the past, and we we really can't make movement forward. Today, we're going to turn our attention to the idea of getting lost in the numbers. And the idea here is we, we feel insignificant when we do the math. Now, I am... I'm not a very good math person. Math was never my favorite subject. So it was a great surprise to me when I fell in love with and married someone with a Bachelor of Science in Math and a minor in Statistics. We would never have met in college because we would never have been in the same building. Now, having a math major in the house has a lot of advantages to it. Uh, If something needs to be added up, I don't even try anymore. I just turn to her and wait for her to tell me whatever the number is. Uh, I didn't have to go through the embarrassment of trying to help our kids do their math homework. I mean, they knew better than to ask me. You know, go ask mom. Dad didn't know anything about math. So it was helpful from that standpoint. But even with a math major in the house, I could not avoid math. You know, when I was in business, I had to deal with all kinds of financial spreadsheets that guided many of the important decisions that we had to make. And now that I've been pastoring this church, I still have to deal with math. You know, when we purchased this land and built these buildings. I I was swimming in math for years. There really is no avoiding math in life. But the most important math we do is is not the external math. It's not the, the math of tests and budgets and projects. It's the internal math that's the most important kind of math. The, the way we go about calculating our own personal personal worth or value or significance. And when we do that kind of math, it's pretty easy to feel insignificant. I mean, we're just one of over 7 billion people on this planet. That's pretty insignificant. We stand a few feet tall, but we look, look up at a universe that's measured in light years, not in feet and inches. And the more we learn about our universe, the larger it seems to be getting. On a clear day, we can see for miles, but this world is 25,000 miles in circumference. And you add all of these numbers to the way people tend to treat us on a daily basis, and and we're left feeling pretty insignificant and small. And what's interesting about us is is we're not okay with that. You know, you you add up these numbers, and it it points to the conclusion that we really don't matter. We're really not that important. We're, We're just a small little speck in a small little planet floating in a vast universe. We we can't be important. But no matter what the apparent significance seems to be, we, we don't accept that. And the reason is because we have a sense deep inside that, that we are important, that we do matter. But without God, we just don't know why. 
We don't know how to answer that question. So we try to do the math on our own. We try to become significant and add things to our own life. Now, our math is best summarized in one word, and that is more. That's the way we do our math, the math of significance. It doesn't matter what kind of more, as long as it's more than we have now, and more particularly than the people around us, that helps us feel more significant. Now, of course, the most common more is money. You know, if we have more money, it proves that we really are more valuable. That's kind of how we think. But it doesn't have to be money. It could be that we are funnier than other people or more intelligent than other people or better looking than other people or more athletic than other people. You know, you pick the kind of more you want, and that's how we add it to our lives to help us to feel better about ourselves. You know, if you want to start trending on the Internet, it doesn't matter what kind of more you pick as long as it's just about the most extreme thing out there. You know, as long as you are weirder or grosser or funnier or more perverted, you will trend online. And people do this because it just helps them feel, you know, I must matter. Look at, look at all the people following me. Look at all the people looking at me. Look at all the people admiring me. But more is never enough. We never seem to be able to draw the equal sign, put the bottom line on there and say, okay, now for once and for all, I've, I've added enough things to my life to, to know forever that I am truly significant. No, we, we've got to keep adding more and more. Now, if we would just add God to the equation of our value, we would never feel insignificant again. But that requires much more than just adding the word God or the idea of God to our life. We have to have a real, ongoing, and meaningful relationship with God in order for that to really impact the math of our significance. And in Psalm 139, we read of a man who was lost in the numbers, the numbers of significance. He was the greatest king Israel ever had, which is interesting. You'll often find someone who's added a whole lot to their lives. They still feel somewhat insignificant. He was the greatest king Israel ever had, but his value still didn't add up. His name was David, and he wrote this psalm, Psalm 139. And in this psalm, we find the math that God uses to address how valuable we really are. And we're going to look through this psalm this morning. This psalm is a great summary of God's math. And in this psalm, we find a three-part formula that forms the, the foundation of our significance, of our value. We'll look at these three. Number one, God says, I know you. I know you. Now, that sounds kind of small, but you see, if we are known by somebody important, we feel important, don't we? This is why people often drop names. They're, they're trying to make the point that, look, I, you may not know me, but you know this poor person, and he's important, or she's important, and they know me. And so we kind of get a little bit of the pixie dust off of them. We get a little bit of the importance off of them. Well, when it comes to an important person knowing you, you can't do better than God. But we often miss this. So here's what it says in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, to talk about this, I know you, part of the formula. It says, you have searched me, Lord, <clears throat> and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. So let's look back through this. David starts out by saying, you have searched me. 
Now, I search and you search because we don't know something. We don't know the answer. You know, we now have Google to help us search for everything. And it reminds us of how much we really don't know. But God knows everything. So why is he searching you and why is he searching me? Well, the Hebrew word that's used here for search means to test. So it's not, I, I don't know what's going on and let me try to figure out who this person is. It's, it's more of a test approach. And a test reveals what's true of a person on the inside. You know, if you take a math test, it reveals, well, you really don't know math. Before that, people didn't know. You take the test, now people know and you know. But you see, God already knows me. That's what it says here. You know me. He knows what needs to be worked on in my life and in your life. The problem is, oftentimes, we don't. He knows us better than we do. So a test comes, and its purpose is to get us to see what God sees. Now, why does God go to all of this trouble of administering tests based on his knowledge of who we are? Well, God knows that the, the real treasure in life to come out of this life will be who we become, not what we do or what we acquire. It's our growth that, that's the gold of life, that's the, the gems of life. And without testing, we will never have the chance to grow. Now, we'd prefer just to posture ourselves all life and just pretend like we're important. And God says, no, I, I really want to work on you on the inside because that's what's really, that, that's, the, that's the real value. And then it goes on to say, you know when I sit and when I rise. And it also says, you discern my going out and my lying down. What does that mean? You know, at the end of most days, my wife, Rebecca, wants to know about my day. She asks me about my day. Now, not just the 1 to 2 p.m. part of my day. She wants to know all about my day. From my going out when I left to my lying down when I go to sleep at night. And no detail is too small from, from you know, what I did when I was standing to what I did when I was sitting. Why? Why does she want to know about my day? It's not because she just needs more information. It, it's because she loves me. And it's the same with God. It's not about the data. It's about me. And God is, is not just watching me. He is listening to me. It goes on to say, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You know, God can seem very far off to us because we can't see him. But he's listening to intently to everything I think, everything I say. You know, when someone wants to know what I'm thinking, I feel valued. So often people have no interest in what you're thinking, no interest in what I'm thinking, and that's because all they care about is what they're thinking. But when someone wants to know what I'm thinking, it's because I really matter to them. And you add up all of this watching, all of this listening to me, and you have a God who is familiar with all of my ways. You know, the root of the word familiar is family. The idea is we become acquainted with the patterns of those living with us, with family. And God knows us like family does. What that means is he's not shocked by me. He's never, oh, I can't believe Bevan did or said that. It's, it's, yeah, that's the kind of stuff Bevan does. He's familiar with all of my ways. In fact, he knows me so well, he actually knows what I'm going to say before I say it. 
You know, it says, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, you know it completely. Now, you know, you've experienced this in your own family. I mean, I know my family so well that sometimes I know what they're going to say before they say it. I mean, I just know, oh, I've heard this story before. You know, and here's the way it goes. Here's the way they tell it. Or I just know them well enough to know that now this, this is the next thing that's going to happen or this is the next thing that's going to be said. Now, I don't, I don't know everything. I know some because we grew up together. We lived together. And even though the decades have separated us, I still know them pretty well, and they know me. Now, I know some, but God knows me, and he knows you completely. So what does God do with, with all of this knowledge? Is it just stored in some database with all of the facts about me and all the facts about you, all the words about me, all the words about you? No. With all of this knowledge, God hems me in behind and before. What does that mean? Well, to hem is to limit the movement of. That's why the, the edge of a garment is called the hem. That's the edge. That's, you know, the, my shirt sleeve doesn't go any farther than this hem right here and right here. Same thing with your clothes. It's, it's the borders. It's, it's the limits of something. And this is a picture of what God does with us. He, he is at work on the edges of our life, the before and the behind and the in front of and the around, all around he surrounds us. And he's at work on the edges of our lives, guiding us towards some things and moving us away from other things. You know, we're making decisions and choices, but beyond all that, God is hemming us in. He's moving us through life. And so that means that whatever happens to you and whatever happens to me, again, is not a surprise to God. Not only what we say and what we do isn't a surprise, but the circumstances that occur, they're not a surprise to God. Nothing's going to sneak up on him. On me? Oh, yeah, all the time. I'm surprised all the time, but not God. Every new situation that I encounter, both good and bad, has been approved by him. Otherwise, it wouldn't have gotten through him to me. And so what that means is the future may seem overwhelming to me, but God has gone before me. You know, if you've ever driven through a, a tall mountain range, maybe like the Rockies, and you'll be driving on a highway or even on a freeway, and, and you'll look up and there'll be this massive mountain range in front of you. And if you just look at where you are and you look at the mountain range, you'd think, how am I going to get through that? That looks impassable. There's no way to get through that. But you don't fear. Why? Well, because you're on a road. What does that mean? Well, that means that people have gone before you, and they have mapped out the best route, and they have built a road through the mountain range, and you're on it. So you can look up at the, the giant Rockies with awe and amazement and not with fear because you know People have gone before you, and there's a road that's been marked out. And this is what God does with us in life. God has gone before me and before you to map out the best route from where you are and to build a road. And if you will stay on that road, if you will take his guidance day by day, you don't have anything to be afraid of. And so you can, you can look around you in awe and amazement, not in constant fear and worry. Because God has hemmed you in behind and before. But that's not all that God does as we face an uncertain future. 
It goes on to say, you lay your hand upon me. Now, the idea here is not in a comforting, patting, there, there, it'll be okay kind of way, but in a grabbing a hold of, laying hold of kind of way. You know, it's what we parents do when we're walking with our little children on unstable ground. We grab a hold of their arms, their hands. We lay our hands upon them because there's a good chance they're going to trip and they're going to fall and we want to be able to hold on to them. You know, the ground that we walk on in this world is very unstable. You know, there's roots that come out of the ground, there's rocks, there's obstacles that trip us up. You know, the ground sometimes, it seems like it just drops off, it opens up, and there's cliffs, and we just, we're in free fall. So God lays his hands on us to stabilize our lives. Now, we are constantly looking for a way to stabilize the ground under us to create a safer and more stable world. We're always naturally looking down, trying to make, make our world safer so that we, on our own two feet, can stand and be secure. But that's not this world. The only true stability comes from above and not from below. The only stability comes from God's hand on you, not the ground under you. So what's the summary of all of this knowledge and how God uses it to guide us through life? Well, David says such knowledge is, well, it's just too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. I I can't wrap my mind around this. What's so wonderful and lofty about all of this? Well, this, this level of thought and this level of attention can only mean one thing. God loves me and you and values us beyond all comprehension. Me, the one in seven billion me, the small speck in a vast universe, me, and you. Now, you know, you could put the equal sign on the end of the formula right there, and we'd be good. But there's more. God says, not only do I know you, but I am with you. Now, this has been implied already in the I know you, but it's expanded on more here. I am with you. Here's what it says, verses 7 through 12 of Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. That starts out by saying, where, where can I go to get away from God? The short answer is nowhere. There's no distant star. You know, I can go up to the heavens. You're there. There's no ocean depths. You know, this is before we could go to the ocean depths. You know, if I make my bed in the depths, you're there. There's no time of day. If I wake up with the birds in the morning, it's not like you're dozing off. It's not like your sleepy hour. No, you're there. There's no faraway island. You know, I settle on the far side of the sea. Even there, your hand's going to guide me. Now, the question is, why would David or anyone... Try to get away from God. 
You know, where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go to get away from you? Well, it's not stated clearly, but I think a pretty good guess is the, the reason people want to get away from God is sin. I mean, any sin carries with it the illusion that God is not present. Or at least if He is present, He's not involved. It's unimportant. Every single time we sin, it requires that we put God out of our mind, that we push Him to the back at least. But what this is saying is God's love, even no matter where we try to run away from Him, God's love is not diminished by our sin. You see, what, once we make that decision to turn to Him, and we reach out our hands, and we ask Him to be our Father and take hold of our lives, what He's saying here is, you're not getting away. I'm not going to let go. You ask me to hold on, and hold on, I will, I will do this. That's why it says, even there, your hand will guide me. You know, you'll show me the next step for wherever I am. And your right hand will hold me fast. You know, the right hand in ancient times was the, the hand of power and of significance. And what this means is God says, you are not just an afterthought. You, you are a focus of mine. I'm going to hold on to you with everything there is. Even where? even when I'm trying to run from you. And even when disaster strikes and you seem far from me, even when the light becomes night around me, when things go dark, when the circumstances of life go dark, what we tend to think is surely the darkness is hiding us from God. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so dark. We think when the circumstances are dark, you know, God must not see this. We must be hidden from God. We must be forgotten by Him. Because if He saw us, if He saw this situation, He would immediately grab us out of it. He must have let go of me. But we forget, or maybe we don't know, that the purpose of life is to grow us. And there are some things of tremendous value that can only grow in the dark. And that's why the darkness... It's not dark to God. The night shines like the day. For darkness is as light to Him. You know, for us, there's night and day. There's good circumstances and bad circumstances. For God, there is no night and day. There is no hidden and unhidden. There's only Him and there's only us. And nothing will loosen His grip on us. You know, as I said before, it's the kind of grip that we use with our kids when they're young. You know, they, they may reach out and grab a hold of us. But that grip is dependent on our strength and not theirs. If it was dependent on their strength, they'd be in trouble. But it's us, the parents, that are providing the strength. They reach their little hands up, but it's our strength. And it's the same with God. You know, we reach up and we ask him to hold on to us, but it's his strength that's holding, not ours. You know, we may think that we have attained some kind of moral strength and maybe we've grown some and that's great, but every single day that you make it through without failing tremendously is, boy, God's been holding on tight. You know, we may fall, we may try to run, 
but God grabs a hold. As it says, your right hand will hold me, not loosely, fast. So what's your value? Well, you're, you're known by God. God is with you. And now the last one, and this is where it gets pretty amazing. I created you. I created you. Verses 13 through 18. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. He starts out by saying, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. It's describing the, the two parts that are true of all of us. There is this inside part, and then there is this outside part. There is a soul and a body. And they are listed in this order for a reason. I love how the message translation puts this part of Psalm 139. It says, you shaped me first inside, then out. The inside part first, then the body. Why inside first? Because that's the core of who we are. That's the essence of, of me and of you. That's why it says about God, your eyes saw my unformed body. Well, you can't see an unformed body because it hasn't been formed yet. What did God see? Before we had a body, God says, I saw you. I recognized you. I saw the deep and eternal you. Now, when you and I interact, as we do with anyone else, we know each other primarily through our bodies. I see your body, it's like, oh, it's you. And you see me, oh, it's you. You know, someone saw me today and said, oh, you're looking good today. It had nothing to do about my soul. It's like, I, you know, it was a nice shirt. I showered, took care of my hair. This is about as good as it I told him, I said, this is as good as it gets. This is the peak of the week. So you're seeing me at my best. You know, but we, we see each other through our bodies. Now, if we're close, if, if we really get to know each other well, then, then we begin to see more about us than just our physical traits. We get to see some of our personality and, and who we really are on the inside. But that's expressed through our bodies. But God sees who we really are on the inside, all of us. And this is the first and the primary us. What that means is that the very center of our value is rooted not in how we look or how impressive we appear, but in who we are on the inside. That's where our value is. We spend so much time measuring our value and measuring other people's values just based on the body. But it's the inside part that's pretty, pretty astounding. It's pretty unique and special in all of the world. And we, we are losing this in modern culture now, our, our, our amazement with what God has done in humankind. 
You see, much has been said over the past hundred years about the similarity between us and the rest of the animals. But in in the wake of all that, far too little has been said about the vast difference between us and the rest of the animals. Yes, like the animals, we do have eyes and rib cages and blood and a whole lot of other similarities. But there's a whole lot about us that's not just a little different, not just a few iterations different, but a chasm of difference. I mean, we build cities and we fly in planes and we create art and we go to the moon and, and the rest of the animal kingdom does not do that. Now, it's not that they're just a little bit behind us on the learning curve or even just like way behind us on the learning curve. Not only are they unable to do these and many of the other fantastic things that we do, but not one of them has ever seemed to be in the least bit interested in even trying to do any of them. No monkey has ever been found tinkering with wood and metal trying to construct any kind of machine with it. You know, after years of training, some of them can be taught to do some of the most rudimentary human-like activities, and we, we are amazed when that happens. But never once has an animal of their own volition ever attempted to do these things. You have to be trained over months and years. Why not? Why, why, why the difference? Where does this difference come from? I mean, there's a lot about us that's similar, but why, why are we so different? Well, it's because of the inside part of us. You see, in the process of trying to elevate the animals closer to us, we have forgotten the amazing spectacle of who we are. We are, as it says here, fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully means awe-inspiring. This word is often used in worship of God. You know, we are something that you might be tempted to bow before and worship, and actually that's done throughout human history. It's done today. You know, we worship celebrities and athletes and musicians and we're not entirely wrong. I mean, there is something there that's, boy, it's pretty, pretty awesome. And we are wonderfully made. Wonderfully, th- this word means, in Hebrew, means to be extraordinarily unique. You know, part of what makes creation so beautiful is the number of unique, distinct details. If you looked out on creation and everything was blue, it wouldn't be that impressive. But because there's all of these colors and all of these shapes and everything is changing, well, that's, that's wonderful. And as humans, we, you know, we can share all kinds of common traits, but each of us is a one-of-a-kind, hand-woven creation of God. We were not produced on an assembly line. I'm not just one of the many blonde-haired, blue-eyed people that were cranked out one day. No, I was woven. You were woven by God. And when we were born, it it was like we were emerging from the depths of the ocean to be seen for the first time. Now, I know with modern technology, we've got sonograms, and we can see, we can see, our children before they're born. 
But even with all of that, I don't know of a single father or mother who sees their child for the first time that isn't, yeah, I've already seen that. Oh, no, it's, there's a vast difference between seeing something on a sonogram and seeing your child for the first time. We see for the first time, but God has been weaving us together with exact precision long before we were seen by anyone. And no, that means no part of us is an oversight. So what kind of, what's our response to be to this? Well, as it says, David says, I praise you, God. And the implication, although it's not said, is I don't praise me. I praise you, God. You did this. God, you created me. It would be ridiculous for me to take a bow over what you did. But it would be insulting for me to demean what you did, either in me or in other people. I know this full well, David says. Why full well? Why not just I know this? Well, full well, there's a Hebrew word, one Hebrew word there that means that I know this because of tremendous diligence. The idea of this implies that this knowledge can be easily forgotten. You know, we can go through a number of days and we can wake up every day and look in the mirror and go, huh, you again. Mm, not looking too good today. And we, we just forget, oh my goodness, I am a hand-woven creation of God. We, we just forget these things. And so we have to bring them to mind. We have to bring these to mind with great diligence. Now, not only did God give us an amazing body to house our soul, he gave us a certain number of days in which to use this body to impact not just this life, but all of eternity. How many days have you been given? Have I been given? We don't know. But God does. That's why it says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You know, we, we celebrate and are grateful for the first day, our birthday. We celebrate that every year. But we dread the last one. And the reason is that our top concern tends to be the number of our days. But God's top concern is what's written in his book. It's talking about this book here. It's a theme you find throughout the pages of Scripture. Each person starts out as a name and a number. Not an identifying number, but a number of days. And every day that we have is an opportunity to add our words and our deeds to the great story that God is writing. That's what the book's referring to. The great eternal story of God. That's why the days are ordained. That word means holy. Every single day you and I get is a holy and sacred day. The word holy means set apart for God's purpose. They're not just another day. It's another opportunity. It's another gift from God to use that day to utter words of praise to him and to turn our hours into service to him. But if we choose to turn our days into a story about us, a little paper novel about our life and how amazing we are, then we miss the great story and we die the way we began, a name and a number, and no more entries. 
But if we offer our words in praise and our hours in service, then we get to become a part of God's great story. So we're so concerned about the number of days, and can we extend more days? And God says, use the ones I've given you, the holy and sacred today that I've given you. Praise me with this. Serve me with this. Don't make this all about you. You miss the purpose of your days. I didn't give you life so that you could figure out every possible way to fight and scratch and scream for one more day. I gave you days to be holy. Use them. So what is that? How should we live today then? I mean, if we don't know when our last day is, it, it could be today. So how should we live today? We should offer up some praise today and we should do some service today because we don't know how many days we get. So now let's put an equal sign on the formula of our great and eternal value before God. It says, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. How precious are your thoughts? You know, I, I remember the first time, when, well, when I was just starting to date Rebecca, my wife. And I still remember the first time that she asked me about a situation that I had mentioned earlier. I don't remember what the circumstances were, but I remember I have a picture of that in my mind. She had a follow-up question for me about something I had mentioned, I think, the week before. Now, her thoughts were precious to me. Why? Her thoughts about me were precious to me. Why? Well, because she, it meant she'd been thinking about me. And what that meant is she at least liked me, which is the first step to loving me. So I still remember the first time that it's like, wow, she spent at least a minute thinking about me this last week. We're getting somewhere. This is progress. See, we think about what we value. If you go by the vast sum of God's thoughts about us, more than the grains of sand in the oceans and the deserts of this world? There's no denying how precious we are to God. His thoughts about us are not in shifts. They're, they're 24-7. And we go to sleep and we dream, but when we wake up, God is still thinking about us. We often stop thinking about God. I mean, we can go days, weeks, months. Sometimes we can push God out for the better part of a life. God never stops thinking about us. Most people do not know this. They don't know what I've shared with you. They're lost in the vast numbers of this world, feeling insignificant and trying to add more to their life to get it to add up to a memory of what they think they should be. But more is never going to be enough. Because no more will ever equal God's thoughts of you, God's love for you, God's creation of you, God's guidance. Only by adding God can a life truly add up. And it's up to us to treat them with the value that they deserve because they are, like us, a unique creation of God's own doing. It's up to us to love them. It's up to us to tell them this truth. That's why we've been using these Invest and Invite cards. So I just want you to take a look at these again. We did this last week, but if you weren't here, or if you were, I want to remind you. 
We're asking all of us just to focus our attention on three people between now and Easter, people that we can pray for, people that we can invest in, that we can take an interest in, that we can love, and people that we can invite to join us on Easter and the series that follows. So I would encourage you to, to use these cards. Put down the names of the people. This is just for you to focus your attention. We need to focus our attention because unlike God, we don't think about these things much. But God does. Let's pray together. Father, Such knowledge is too wonderful for us to imagine. It's too lofty for us to attain. We wake up in the morning and our mind gets going on the list of things that we want to accomplish or the problems that we're trying to solve. And we rush into our days and we forget that while we slept, you were at work. While we slept, you were watching and listening. And that as we move through our day, that you've got a hold of our hands and you are hemming our lives in and you are guiding us. And we are surrounded by people who are, are trying to make up for a, for a loss of that. They've forgotten this or they've never known this. I pray that you would anchor us in the foundation of our true significance, and that you would help us from that foundation to truly love and reach out to and strike up and have conversations with those who are lost. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.